good to gather together and uh, uh, worship the Lord on this. I think it's the last Sunday of August, and what a Sunday it is to, to enjoy, but it's also sort of a Sunday of mourning. It just feels like uh, summer has just kind of gone, and um, I don't know where it went, but um, I enjoyed a little bit of it. Anyhow, it's uh, great to, to gather here. Now, a couple of things that I want to draw to your attention. First of all, um, we have been working for the last seven or eight months to establish a, a working relationship between our church and Parksville Elementary School, and we're seeing that relationship begin to unfold now, and it's uh, developing in a, in a couple of ways. One, um, uh, we are just working on, a, we had some of our youth that went and helped with their sports day. Um, we uh, have an opportunity to provide backpacks, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that, backpacks for many of the students that aren't able to, to get their own backpacks with school supplies and those sorts of things. And they've also opened the door up for us to put together a group of people that will help with their gardening. They have a, a, a garden plot that they want to teach their students how to garden and how to cultivate all different kinds of things. And so it opens the door for us uh, to just begin to, to help a school that is in need and also to just live out our faith amongst them. And so one of the things that we have an opportunity to do is, as I say, provide backpacks. And we, uh, we had uh, 10 backpacks that we gave out, cards that looked like this. And we had five of them come back, and we still need those five to come back by Tuesday. So if you took one of these cards um, about uh, four weeks ago, we need you to get it back by Tuesday. But we also have um, seven more. And uh, um, if you would like to do one of these, there are cards, and they have the name of a, uh, they don't have a name, they have a, a boy or a girl, the grade that they're in, and then the specific um, supplies that they need. And it will come to probably about $80 or $100 to provide a backpack. So you can go in maybe with another uh, uh, few friends that you have, or you might want to do it on your own. But if you take one of these cards, they're available at the uh, uh, visitor's booth. Um, we need them back by Tuesday, so it means that you'll have to go shopping. Um, oh, I was going to say this afternoon, but I know some will shoot me. But you'll, <laughs> you'll need to go shopping um, soon uh, so that you can bring these back by Tuesday and so that we can get them off um, uh, to Parksville Elementary School. So if this is something that you would like to do and you're able to do, um, I encourage you to, to pick up a card. Um, next on my list of things to say, uh, we are in, in, a, in a bit of a transition here at the church, um, again in our office, and it's, it's, it's kind of come at a real busy time. Uh, Marge is going to be gone for four months, and uh, Tammy Lynn uh, transitioned out of the office, and so we're looking to replace Tammy Lynn, and so we're a little bit down in office staff. And for the next couple of weeks, we are really in need of somebody who can particularly come and help us out in the area of um, children's ministry. And so if there is somebody here and you have some office skills and you can work a photocopier, you can work on the phone, you can do a little bit on computers, we, we really need somebody for a couple of weeks. And if that is something that you think you might be able to help, it's about five, six hours a week, then come and talk to me and um, we will plug you in and um, uh, let you uh, get involved in that area just to help as all the programs get going and as we're in this period of transition. Finally, where's Jason? Coming up, Jason. Jason is our youth intern. He's starting on September the 1st, which means that he starts on Tuesday. Um, and Jason is down. How long are you going to be with us, Jason? Uh, I'm going to be here for 10 months. For 10 months. And uh, um, what are you going to be doing? Uh, working with youth, mostly. Uh, just the, mostly the senior high for the first uh, semester, and then uh, probably work down to the junior high uh, second semester. So Awesome. And I was chatting with Jason in, in my office a little while ago, and he's really keen on discipleship. I graduated from Briar... Peace River. Peace River. Bible Institute. Bible Institute. See, yeah. I, I stopped myself mid-sent. Peace, Peace River Bible Institute. 
And uh, he really feels the call of God to serve the Lord. And we have a long track record in this church of interns. And so Jason is just kind of stepping into that. One of the things, though, we've been working on is we've been setting up a place for him to stay in Bethlehem Walk. <laughs> and somebody came along and they said to me, Paul, we can't put Jason in Bethlehem Walk. And I said, well, we've been looking for a place for him to, to stay for the next 10 months, but we've been unable to do that. And so this is the next best thing that we've got. So look at this young man. Look at his face. Um, if you have a room in your house, um, maybe a garden shed or uh, something that's different than, uh, than uh, the Bethlehem Walk. Anything's better than that. Anything's better than the Bethlehem Walk. Uh, if you do have a, a, a place that he can uh, stay, uh, a room that he can uh, just kind of hang his hat and call home, uh, we need a place for 10 months, but if you can only offer it for a portion of the time, then that's all right. Um, but come and talk uh, with Dan. I don't, uh, Dan, I know, is around somewhere, but talk with Dan King, or if you find Jason, uh, talk to Jason, and we'll kind of get these things going, and we'll have Jason out of Bethlehem Walk and into someplace nice and warm. Thanks, Jason. Thanks All right, there we go. Uh, if you uh, take your, have your Bibles with you, take them and turn to um, Proverbs chapter 7. There are Bibles in front of you in the, in the seats if you'd like to pull one of those out. And um, this morning, what we are doing is, when I first started the summer, I wanted to do a, a series, um, two series. I wanted to do a series on biblical um, basics, uh, and then I wanted to do a series from the first nine chapters of Proverbs, and just kind of, I was get, my, my original plan was to jump back between morning and evening and alternate them so everybody would get a little bit of uh, a taste of each. Um, I quickly uh, ran into... Um, some wise comments from, from uh, the team that I work with, and they said, you know, you're just going to confuse people, and uh, stick with one in the morning and one at night. Um, but I had for a long time really felt that I, I needed to chat with our congregation uh, just about um, uh, ethics and sexuality, and so I had sort of hived off Proverbs chapter 7 that I wanted to just talk with our morning congregations about, and so that's what we're going to be doing this morning, is talking about Proverbs chapter 7. And I guess in a way it is a, a biblical basics um, because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a part of the ethical uh, direction that God has given us to live in. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 7 and working our way through this passage. Uh, but before we do, let's uh, turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that we can now turn to your word. And uh, uh, Father, your word really addresses every area of our life. There's nothing that you don't speak to us about I thank you for your word because without it, we would really be lost about how to live. We'd be lost about understanding the, the, the best way that you had designed for us to live. We would be just making a mess of our relationships constantly. But Lord, you in your wisdom and in your grace and your mercy has shown us the way that we ought to live in your word. And so I thank you for that. Spirit of God, would you instruct our hearts this morning, even though this might be a topic that that some might um, feel a little bit um, at, at odds about dealing with, and some might say it has no relevance to them. Uh, there is always relevance from the Word of God into each of our lives. So, Spirit of God, would you speak to us personally? Would you make the book live? Would you make your Word live, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was uh, getting ready to, to speak on this, um, and I have been working on it for a little while, but last week, somebody who knew I was going to be talking about this uh, fired me off uh, an email um, with a... Uh, a write-up that they had been reading, and I thought it was really helpful to, to lay out the, the big picture before we zero in on some of the details here. And it was uh, from a daily devotional by John Stott. 
And uh, in that, uh, I'm just going to read, uh, it's a fairly long quote, but I'll comment in and out of it as we use it to get going on this morning. He begins by saying, one of the great weaknesses of contemporary evangelical Christianity is our comparative neglect of Christian ethics in both our teaching and practice. In other words, he says, we don't do very well at helping people understand the way God would have us to live. He goes on, in consequence, we have become known rather as a people who preach the gospel than those who live and adorn it. That one ought to sit, sit in our heads a little bit. We have become known as a people who preach the gospel rather than those who live and adorn it. In other words, the gospel is not changing the way that we live. We are not always conspicuous in the community as we should be for our respect for the sanctity and quality of human life, our commitment to social justice, our personal honesty and integrity in business, our simplicity of lifestyle and happy contentment, in contrast to the greed of the consumer society or for the stability of our homes in which unfaithfulness and divorce are practically unknown and children grow up in the secure love of their parents. One of the main reasons for this is that our churches do not, on the whole, teach ethics. We are so busy preaching the gospel that we seldom teach the law. We need to teach not only the essence of the good news, but also the essence of the good life. Do you understand what he's saying? You can't have the gospel without the life that comes with it. That the two are intimately connected. There is an urgent need for us, as pluralism and relativism spread worldwide, to follow the example of scriptural writers and give people plain, practical, ethical teaching. Christian parents must teach God's moral law to their children at home. Sunday school and day school teachers must ensure that their pupils know at least the Ten Commandments. Pastors must not be afraid to expound biblical standards of behavior from the pulpit so that the congregation grasps the relationship between the gospel and the law. And right from the beginning, converts must be told that the new life in Christ is a holy life. A life bent on pleasing God by obeying His commands. One such ethical topic is sex. The Bible has a great deal to say about sex and sexuality. In Proverbs chapter 1-9, to almost a third of it is given over to the topic of sex and sexuality and sexual temptations. Culturally, we have become an extraordinarily promiscuous, sexually charged society. But God has not changed. And the biblical instruction that God gives us is not varied. Sex is His idea. He has established its boundaries. And God speaks with clarity on the issue of sex and on both the immediate and the long-term consequences of straying into sexual sin. This morning, as we look at chapter 7, I've sort of cast it in the net of a, of a, of a play. And I'm not a playwright, but it just helped me to make sense of it. And so we begin with Act 1. And I call Act 1, if I had the scene set up behind me, it would be a, a scene with a fire going in a sort of those big leather chairs, and it would be a fireside chat. And there's a sense of urgency that, that's in the tone and the voice of the father as he's beginning to talk to his son because he wants to protect him. He wants to warn him. He, he wants to make him aware of the dangers that he faces out in the world. And so the aim of the father, as it is with all of the scriptures, is to teach that there is freedom within form. 
that there is love within limits, and that there is life within law. In other words, life is best lived within the boundaries that God provides. And when you understand those boundaries, there is extraordinary freedom that comes to your life. And so the best relationships are those that are within the boundaries of marriage. Uh, and so he's talking with urgency to his son. And he begins in, in verses, uh, I'll read the first five verses. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. Notice just a plain talk right off the top. Keep my words as you would a treasure. Son, I want you to know how to safeguard the family reputation and the family wealth. I want you to keep my words like a treasure in your heart. Secondly, son, keep my words as you would value your very life. Son, what is at stake here is not just um, a, a bit of misery or a bit of pleasure, but what is at stake here is your life itself. Keep my words and live. Keep them as you would the tenderest part of your anatomy, your eye. And I sort of pictured him maybe with a bit of humor taking out his glass eye and rolling it around for his son. But he wouldn't have done that. It's, I'm sorry. Anyhow, keep my treasures or keep these words as the apple of your eye. In other words, let the word of God, let the commands of God, let the teachings of God be the, the, at, at the very heart of of your being. Uh, be, the, be the grid through which you see things. Be the grid through which you hear things. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. The eye, one said, is the most delicate and yet most precious member of the human anatomy. And it is essential for illumination and guidance. Without it, there is only darkest, darkness. The point? My teaching needs to be guarded with diligent protection. Keep it um, as you would treasure. Value it as you would your life. Keep it as the center of your focus. And then he draws uh, uh, in a few metaphors here, as it were. He says, first of all, tie it around your finger um, uh, to remind yourselves. I'm sure many of you have at one point put an elastic bound around your finger or put a piece of string uh, around your finger, and it helps you remember. And every time you flash your finger around, and you, oh, oh, i got to remember that. Uh, and so it's a memory device. He's, he's saying you ought to find a way to find, get the Word of God and to bind it on you in such a way that you don't forget it. For me, it's, it's not a, unlike a wedding ring. And I really think, men, if you are married, you ought to wear your ring. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because rings, uh, I think, at least serve a, uh, at least twofold purpose. The first purpose, it's a reminder to you. I'm a married man. I made a covenant. I made a commitment to be faithful to my wife. And so every time you, you use this hand, every time you hit something, you hear that click, and it's a reminder that you're married. I think, though, also, it's a reminder for everyone else that you're taken. And I know that's meaning less and less in the world in which we live today, but at least it's another barrier. I'm taken. I'm called for. I'm spoken for. And so in the same way, he's saying, as you, as you take the Word of God, the teachings of God, and bind them around your finger... Don't forget them. And then he says, and, and take them and, and write them on the tablet of your heart. 
You see, your heart is, is, is the center of who you are. It's the center of your personality. It drives your emotions, your will, your thoughts. As, as Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. And so he says, take my words, take the teaching of God, and, and write it on your heart. He might have taken a scroll as he was sitting around the fire and, and held it to his heart and said, just as it's on the outside, make it part of your inside. And it's another way in which he's saying to his son, remember this stuff. Don't let it out of your sight. Tie it to you. Bind it to you. Write it on your heart. Don't forget about this kind of thing. And then he uses a couple more things, and he talks about self-talk. The Bible is fascinating this way, and we don't have time to look at some of the Proverbs, which I would love to look at, which are bad self-talk. Sometimes we can self-talk ourselves into difficult situations and trouble and sin. Other times we can use biblical self-talk and preserve us from temptation and keep us from harm. And so he's hearing, he's saying here, talk to yourself in these two different ways. He says, first of all, in verse 4, say to wisdom... Say to teaching, say to the word of God, you are my sister. Now, why sister? I, I don't have a sister. I, I, sometimes I wish I, I had had a sister. But I think sisters, they, they tell you the truth. You know, they tell you what it's like. You know, if somebody is trying to pull the wool over your eyes or somebody's trying to take advantage of you or, you know, uh, you know, you might be dating a girl and nobody else will tell you the truth about this girl but your sister will. So there's an honesty about a sister that I've observed, a truthfulness about the sister. So he says, take wisdom and call it your sister. And then he says, for those of us who don't have sisters, then he adds, and make it call insight your intimate friend. What is an intimate friend but one who tells you the truth? I have a few in my life and I value them. Because they, they don't tell me what I want to hear. They don't just make me feel happy and make me feel good. If they see me going in a wrong direction, if they hear me talking in a way that's not good and they're around to see it or reserve it, they tell me so. That's what the Word of God does. It speaks truth to you. In the midst of all the lies, all the deceit, all the flattery, the Word of God will tell you the truth all the time, every time. And so as the fireside chat is kind of concluding, he's, he's trying to remind his son that the word of God, that the teachings of scripture are, are for, for protection, are for safety, are for security. And then he says to keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. He says, if you keep my words, they will keep you from dangerous liaisons. Loved ones, do we understand the urgency in this area? This, this is not a game sexual sin. It has destroyed more lives, both now and in eternity, than few other things have, and few other things will. There is a world of sins that are attached to sexual sin. We've got to get the urgency of this. We've got to take clearly and, and personally what the Bible says to us in this area. And so as we sort of end that now, we move into a story of seduction. And if I had been a songwriter, I would have put it to words. Um, I, I, I got a song that keeps flowing through my head, and it's a, it's a song from the Beverly Hillbillies. Come on and listen to a man named Jed, a poor mountain man, barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some oil or food, and up through the ground came a bubbling crude. And I thought, I, I got to get this in a catchy way so that people can remember it. And now, unfortunately, you're going to remember the Beverly Hillbillies and not <laughs> the message. But 
but he, he begins now to paint this story of seduction. And to prove his point to, to Solomon, he now narrates, uh, uh, or to prove his point, he now narrates a real-life situation. This father is no idiot. He's been around for a while. He's observed life. He's read the newspapers. He's watched the TV. He's seen this stuff work its way out. And the amazing thing about Scripture is its ability to show the reality of sin in such a way as to alarm us rather than attract us. And parents, this is a skill that you need to figure out how to get a hold of. To somehow be able to teach your sons and daughters about the dangers of of, of temptation and what it provides in a way that alarms them rather than attracts them. And that is an art and that is a skill. And so now what I, what I see is a, a different set now. The, the screen is back open and there's a new set. And sort of over here there's a, a big tall building. Maybe it's even a castle. And there's a window there. And then over here there's a, there's a sort of a city scene. And there's a few crosswalks and streets and, and a couple buildings. And, and that's sort of the, the scene that's set now. And, and it unfolds now as the father begins to narrate this real life situation. Verses 6 to 9. For at the window of my house, he's up here in the window of his house. At the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The father is depicting a gullible individual en route to trouble. The story may depict a literal window. It's certainly talking about a worldview, and we all have a worldview, how we look at life, how we look at actions. And, 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 and the father here is keeping an eye on this one particular young man. There's a group of boys. He sees them sort of gathered around this scene here, and he's watching them as they mull about and as they kind of talk, and it's getting kind of dark, and, and he's, he's, he's noticing a gullible. And by the way, a gullible person, what's a gullible person? A gullible person is somebody who is unable to make a commitment. The, the biblical word for, for it is one who is open. In other words, it's a person who has not yet learned to discern right from wrong. They, 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 oh, they hear this, oh, that sounds good. And then, oh, well, that sounds good. And, and like they're, they're back and forth. They have no ability to make a decision. They, 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 whatever is the latest thing to convince them, they think that's right. And so a gullible person is a very dangerous person to be. And Proverbs is full of warnings to those who are gullible. And as he's watching this young man, he sees one who's about to throw aside everything that he knows to be true for a lie. He's about to betray his relationship with his family and squander his family's heritage. And he watches this young man as he kind of peels away now from the group. His gait is kind of tentative. He's curious, he's a bit secretive, he tries to appear as though he's just kind of slipping away from the crowd and as he's just passing through in the city streets, and clearly his his wandering is betraying a lack of commitment to the right way. He further lacks any moral sense to avoid the moral jeopardy that he's walking into, and as fate would have it, he finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Loved ones? If you start to stray off the track, you will always find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. In the twilight, it says, in the evening, at the time of night, every phrase or word in verse 9 in this, in this depiction is pertaining to darkness. He's talking about this, 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 this um, 
time when, when, when the wind comes with the evening time, a time when the stars are becoming divisible. The time of darkness is often a time when robbers come out. It's a time when adulterers move about. It's a time when one can move about without being recognized and without being seen. You can kind of hide in the cover of darkness. And it further clarifies the time here. Says, and, and what is going on here is darkness is symbolizing the moral darkness that he has just entered into. And I can picture the, the lights in that scene just beginning to go a little bit dark. As the crowd is um, sitting there and the one boy is walking off and it's getting darker and darker. Shakespeare in his descriptive scene of Tarquin's rape of Lucrece writes, This said he, Tarquin, set his foot upon the light. I love that image. He set his foot upon the light. For light and lust are deadly enemies. Shame folded up in blind concealing night. When most unseen, then most, most doth tyrannize. His epitaph is short. He lacked sense. And now, there's a quick change of scene. and um, Kids are gone and the city's still there. And Read in verse 10 to 13. He says, and behold, a woman meets him. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him with a bold face. She says to him, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. The father is trying to prepare his son for what he's going to face. He carefully describes her approach, her dress, her motives, her nature, her aggressive actions, her speech. Behold! Look! He, he's trying to get their attention. He's trying to create in their minds a, a sort of a, a picture of this scene. And, and, and that's a strong word there. Behold. Wake up. Open your eyes. See what is unfolding before you. Engage your imagination. Watch this scene play out before you. Notice her bold approach, her distinctive dress. Understand her hidden designs within her heart. He says she is wily of heart. Her wayward nature and her brazen approach. Her outward dress, which often exposes her body, but conceals her inward attentions. For the morally stupid, the outfit is camouflage. You get that? For the morally stupid, her outfit is camouflage. She is unruly, loud, wayward. The exact opposite of the traits of a godly woman, as Peter describes her. She is defiant and restless, even though she has a house. She does not have a home. She's a woman without roots and family and community and love. She's here and there. She's everywhere. Her feet are all over towns, and before any words are engaged, she grabs him. And little does she know that the kisses with which she smothers him are kisses of betrayal rather than kisses of any kind of affection or love. Behold, look, the main characters have been revealed before us. Now a smooth talker. This is sort of the next scene, act three. And what I picture is as this scene unfolds, there's a Scottish hillside. It'll make sense in a minute. There's a Scottish hillside. And, and all over this hillside, there's spider's webs everywhere. Um, and so I want you to have that sort of picture in your mind as I read this illustration. It's an illustration I read a number of years ago, and I cannot get it out of my head every time I think about sin and temptation. It just keeps popping back into my head. Here is an illustration, then, I think of sin and temptation. During a solitary walk along the hillside above the village of Dernish one day last September, all the while as I walked, I was thinking about my own unceasing and ever-increasing temptations. 
Isn't that the story of your life? It's, uh, it's the story of my life. Increasing and unceasing temptations. Now, as God would have it there, and had been the whole night of the densest sea fog from the Atlantic, and the wet spray stood in millions of shining gems all over the spider's webs that were woven all over the broom and the bracken and the bushes of wind and the bushes of heather. Had I not seen with my own eyes, I could not have believed it. The whole hillside was absolutely covered from top to bottom with spider's webs past all counting up. All the spiders in Scotland seemed to me to have conspired together to weave their webs and to spread their snares all over Durnish that day. To the casual and innocent-minded passerby, the whole hillside would have seemed simply splendid with its brilliant network of sparkling silver. But the very brilliancy of the scene made the hillside all the more horrible and diabolical to me. As I thought of the bloodthirsty devil that lay watching for the silly flies at the hidden heart of every silvery web. It was a Saturday afternoon, and it would have been well worthwhile a weekend ticket to some of you just to have stood beside me for a few moments and to have seen with your own eyes that satanic hillside that September afternoon. For myself, I shall never forget the sight. I see it at this moment as I stand before you. A thousand times that sight has risen up before my eyes since I came home. If our Lord had been passing by the hillside that afternoon, he would have stopped his walk, and looking at the spider's webs, he would have said to his disciples, Such is the kingdom of Satan. Which, when the twelve had seen it and laid to heart, they would have said, Who then can be saved? Then he would have answered them, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So it is with Satan's death-spreading snares in the case of every human soul. Satan's snares snares are woven and woven over and over every inch of the human soul. But those snares of Satan are wholly invisible till the sun rises and till the soul awakens to a life of watching and praying and believing. There are invisible snares everywhere inside the human heart. And it's only through our praying and through our seeking God and through the word of God that all of a sudden the sunlight shines on those snares and makes them visible. And then we think, how can I do it unless God help me through it? So then we come to scene one, act one. The trap is being set now. Verses 14 to 17, I had to offer sacrifices and, to, or, and today I have paid my vows. This is her saying this to him. So now I have come out to meet you. To seek you eagerly, I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egypt, from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, alloys, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. God is okay with everything, she tries to say to him. I don't know what exactly is going on in verse 14. Some think that it's, it's a fellowship sacrifice that she has made. And so part of the fellowship sacrifice is you would go and you would offer some of the, the sacrifice and the priest would be able to keep some. And then the reindeer meat you would take home and you would have a, a meal with your family and friends. It was a way of sharing in God's blessing, sharing in God's goodness. She had paid her vows. Uh, maybe it was a, a, a fertility rite. Maybe this is a foreign woman, and it was a, a fertility rite offered to foreign gods. Whatever the case might be, she is somehow trying to allure him in by saying, God is okay with this. I have sat with people in my office 
who have sinned in this way, and they said, we prayed about this. We're okay with this. God's okay with this. What are you telling us different for? We somehow get God to okay the most hideous of sins and think it's all right. And I think that is part of what's going on here. She, she knows there's a sensitivity there, and so she says, I've prayed about it. I've talked about it. God's okay with it, so you ought to be okay with it. And then she goes on and she says, you're the apple of my eye. Oh, her bold-faced lie is that this young man is something special. There's something unique about him and him alone. She flatters his ego. Not his eagle, his ego. I've come looking for you, you good-looking hunk of a man. You're the guy that I've always wanted all my life. And so she flatters him. She persuades him. She fakes idolization, and her smooth words drip like honey. She chose him and nobody else, sought him out diligently, and now personally invites him to her lavish home. I've been waiting just for you, she says. Finally, she stimulates his sexual desires by painting a sensual picture for him. She offers him a night of unbridled passion and lovemaking. She appeals to his sense of touch and smell and sight. His guard is dropped. His passions are heightened. His senses are on overload. His ego is bursting. And what's more, God is okay with it. Scene 1, Act 2, verses 18 to 20. We have nothing to fear. We linger for a moment at the sheer weight of the appeal as it settles upon this young man and now the final nail is being hammered into the coffin so to speak no he to hesitate come the night is ours we we have all night the passing uh, passing pleasure is emphasized let's enjoy ourselves see the trouble is she only offers passion not love she promises sexual love without erotic restraint. She refuses to make the fundamental commitment of self to him that is required for true love. To say physically, I am giving myself to you while emotionally and spiritually holding back from covenanted commitment is in fact to live a lie. Somehow she senses fear in his eyes. He maybe pulls back a little bit. He intuitively knows that, that this is not right. He, he intuitively kind of thinks that something's not, not right. And he's, where does this come from? Is, it, is this real or imaginally? She says, no, no, don't worry. My husband's gone. He's gone for a long time. He's taking a bag of money. He's not going to be back for a month, which I think was a lie as well, because she's only offering him a night. But he, he's gone, so don't worry about it. Loved ones, that is the age-old lie of Satan. Satan throws aside Eve's reservation to not sin with the promise, you will not die. We hear that uttered in our ears with almost every temptation we face. Nobody will know. God doesn't care. He'll forgive you. His grace is enough. Nothing will happen. He's a big God. There is no God. Nothing will happen to you. Truth is, biblical ethics are thrown aside if deed and consequences are not connected. Loved ones, there is a direct connection between our actions and their consequences. Good and bad. 
They might not happen immediately, but you can be sure, because the Bible says it is true, that there will be a connection between your deeds and your consequences. This is a lie, though, that so many believe today. It doesn't matter what I do, because nothing will happen. It doesn't matter what I'll do, because so-and-so did it, and see, they're still fine. Give enough time, and you will find that there is consequences for every action. So she uses both her dress and her language to mask the reality. This is, much, this is clear, though. She's offering only a night, no commitment. Her words are bitter wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Everything about her is a lie. Now the father makes his sort of comments on this. Verse 21 to 23. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. At once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till the arrow pieces its liver. As a bird rushes into the snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. I don't know if maybe on the set now it's changed and you have a picture of an ox that is being slaughtered and a picture of a stag that is caught and somebody standing by with an arrow to pierce its liver and another guy with a snare and a, and a, a bird that's caught in the snare. And I also picture that maybe in the background, there's, a, there's just sort of a, a, a face of a, a father who, who you can just see he's crushed. He's just crushed because he can see the direction that his son is headed in. And you see, notice, notice what it says here. With much persuasive words, with smooth thought, she compels him all at once. He follows her. Loved ones, that is the path uh, of, of strain, of seduction. We take a couple steps. We take a couple steps. We take a couple steps. We, we ignore the, the voice in our ears. We ignore the word written on our heart. We ignore the string on our finger. And then all at once, we just rush headlong into sin. And it's no different than an ox that's being slaughtered, than a stag that's being killed, than a bird that's being ensnared. The picture is clear. Death is the consequence. Some say ignorance is bliss. I don't think that can be farther from the truth. Um, ignorance for this young man is going to cost him a great deal. The moral of the story is stupid animals see no connection between straps and death. Morally stupid people see no connection between their sin and death. Then we have the curtain call. I think here that now the, the scene has all been cleared and once again we're back in this fireside room. And there's more men gathered around now. Notice it says in verse 24, Oh, sons. So it's all like there's, there's just been people that have been gathering around listening to this chat. And he's pulling it all together. He says in a nutshell, Continue in the ways that you have taught. Listen to the words of truth and not lies. Loved ones, we need to understand the impact that words have on us. Whether it's the songs that we listen to, the books that we read, the TV shows that we, that we regularly watch, the movies that we go to, words matter. This, this whole thing is about words. It's the father's words. It's the woman's seductive words. That's what life is about. We live in a context of words. So he reminds him once again, listen to my words. In a nutshell, guard your heart in the path of your feet. Guard your heart. Fill your heart with good things. Fill your heart with the word of God. Fill your heart with the truth. What does it say? My, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not 
sin against you. Guard your heart. Watch your feet. In a nutshell, look at the wake of destruction that has followed her path. Many are her victims. You you go back over the history of time and you see the fallen slain in this particular area. And I was thinking of this in, in 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 the children of Israel as they were just on the verge of entering into the promised land and they were settled on the plains of Moab waiting to go in there. And Balaam had come and he had been unable to curse the people, curse the people. And finally he gives some just devilish advice. He says, send your women among them and you will cause a stumbling block to come among the people of Israel. And so the daughters of Moab went in amongst the men of Israel and they just wrecked havoc amongst the people. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, and 23,000 died that day because of a plague that God sent. Her victims are many. And then he also says her victims are mighty. You just need to think of Samson. Strong Samson. Spirit of God upon him. Oh, Samson, tell me the secret of your strength. He withers. David, king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. One night where he shouldn't have been. He should have been with his armies, but he's on top of his roof. He he falls for Bathsheba. And and the consequences of sin that came into his life. Yes, he was forgiven, as Psalm 51 tells tells us. But the consequences followed him for the rest of his life. Look at the news of the, the governors that are following, falling all over the states and the, the destruction that's bringing on their families and on their, on their states. Many are her victims, and among them are the mighty. Summary, her way is the way to death. If I were ending this play, and I knew anything about plays, and I don't, but what I might have is, is then finally, uh, you, you have a house, and you walk into the house, and um, and then you get into the woman's house and all the living room and the bedroom is set inside a coffin. Her end is the way of death. I don't know if any of you have heard of a strapado. In the old and evil days, there was a diabolic instrument of torture in Spain called a strapado. The cruel instrument was worked in this wicked way. The poor victim was first hoisted up to a great height by means of ropes and pulleys, and then he suddenly was dashed to the ground till every bone in his body was torn out of joint and broken into pieces. And the name of that Spanish Traspado has passed into the English language because the old preachers of the day frequently employed the illustration of the Strapado in their experimental or their practical sermons. Thomas Goodwin was one such one, and he put it this way, Now, his lust, both of body and mind, do Strapado a sinner's expectations. That is to say, his sinful imaginations hoist up his expectations of pleasure to a very great height, and then suddenly he is let to fall. For when the sinner comes to enjoy his high expectations, they always prove themselves to be such flat and empty things that his soul, being completely cheated, says to itself, And this is all? Thus always do a sinner's high expectations strapado him, Till his spirit is simply dashed to pieces within him. The pursuit of a forbidden woman is like being hoisted up and dropped in a strapado. Loved ones, as we wrap this up so quickly, there is a connection between deed and consequence. Never forget it in this area or in every other area. Secondly, remember God calls us 
to a holy life. It's not just about making Jesus your savior and your friend and your buddy, which is so true. He does become your savior and your friend and your buddy. But it means then that your life becomes different, that its orientation is different, that there's a change in the way that you act and the way that you talk and the places that you go and the things that you say. We are called to a holy life as children of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's God's will for us. There's great hope, though, and I'm sorry I've gone so long. There is great hope, and you can find that hope in Psalm 51, which is David's um, mercy, his reception, his receiving of grace and mercy from the Father as he confessed his sins. There is forgiveness of sins. In Colossians chapter 3, I just want to read this. I think it's helpful. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Loved ones, I can't stress enough the importance to be men and women who not only embrace the good news but embrace the good life and the bible is very clear when it says those who walk in the spirit will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh if you're struggling ask god to fill you afresh and anew with his holy spirit if you've fallen go to god as david did and find forgiveness if you're if you're struggling do what paul says in colossians put to death the things that drag you down. Put on righteousness, gentleness, patience, loving kindness. Father, thank you.